This is the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. This is a podcast aimed at better understanding other people and better understanding ourselves. You can learn more about it at behavior-podcast.com. As you probably know if you've listened to this podcast in the past, I sometimes focus on political polarization-related topics because I think it's a hugely important problem, not just in America, but for humanity in general. This episode is about a case of us-versus-them polarization in a small town. The small town is Caroline, and it's near Ithaca in central New York State. The fight is over a proposal to implement some zoning laws in Caroline. Zoning laws that are aimed at preserving some of the small town character and charm, and preventing too much commercial or industrial use. While anti-zoning residents see the zoning proposal as overly burdensome and restrictive, and as also being rather elitist in nature, and as not having the interests of lower-income people in mind. And that's my attempt to quickly summarize the divide, being an outsider. So apologies to Caroline residents if I'm not describing it that well. I recently moved near Ithaca and learned about this debate by reading some local papers. One piece that stood out was a letter to the editor in the Ithaca Times by a resident named Rebecca Schillenbach. The title of her letter was A Case Against the Zoning War in Caroline, with the word war being in quotes. So here's Rebecca reading her letter to the editor. There's a sign that those opposed to the proposed zoning law in the town of Caroline have placed by the side of Route 79 in Slaterville Springs. It reads, There's a war in the valley. Time to pick a side. Under that admonition, written in red on a white background, are secured two of the now ubiquitous signs seen all over town that read, Town of Caroline, Established 1811, No Zoning Needed. When Russia invaded Ukraine, the word war at the top of this sign was briefly covered up by the words, No Zoning Needed, perhaps a tacit acknowledgement of how horrifying an actual war is. Now, though, the cover-up is gone, so we are back to having a declaration of war right across from our town government buildings. As a Quaker, I do not consent to this roadside command to choose a side in a war. This is not a war. This is a debate about land use. I respectfully reject the us-against-them framework. In order to promote their case against zoning— My anti-zoning neighbors are taking advantage of the many us-against-them lines of reasoning already present in our town, throughout our divided country, and in our fractured world in this polarized time. Exacerbating and exploiting division to win a war you've declared only fuels conflict and forces all disagreements into the you're-either-with-us-or-against-us framework. In a community of people with divergent viewpoints and experiences, this kind of approach to our differences makes it difficult to seek constructive and creative solutions. Starting from the assumption that we all love this place we call home, I observe my anti-zoning neighbors making use of the following polarizing cultural divides. Rural versus urban, rich versus poor, more educated versus less educated, Farmers versus non-farmers, people with money versus people with land, liberal versus conservative, people who have been here for generations versus those recently arrived, and of course, Republican versus Democrat. 
Frequently, a deeply ingrained and subtle anti-government ideology runs through their arguments as well. So they also make use of a government can be used for good versus government is always out to get us and take our money divide. One sign that sums up the habitual dividing of neighbor against neighbor in this war, posted prominently next to Caroline Elementary School, reads, We are the reason they want zoning. They are the reason we don't. Yikes. Who are we? And who are they? Again, I decline my consent and refuse to be placed in this categorization. What if there is only us and we are all in it together? What if we could think of this conflict over zoning as a way to acknowledge that it takes all of us to be we the people who love Caroline? So that's about half of Rebecca's full letter to the editor, but it's enough to give you an idea of her frustration at the us versus them anger she sees around her. If you want a link to the full piece, you can find it on my site, or you can find it by searching online for Caroline, a case against the zoning war. I thought it was an eloquent piece, and I wish we saw more of these kinds of messages from people about our us versus them divides. And I also wish we saw influential people more often promote these kinds of messages. I thought it would be interesting to talk to Rebecca about the nature of this divide and the emotions behind it. Some of the topics we discuss include the backstory of this divide in Caroline and some similar us versus them divides in that area, how this local divide maps over to the national us versus them divides, how feeling like the underdogs in a fight and fighting against something you think is threatening you can be factors in people being willing to use more angry, belligerent rhetoric, how there might be underlying fears and anxieties about the future, for example, financial-related anxieties, that can help explain some of the sources of our us-versus-them anger. Our very human tendency to be prone to getting angry and why it can be so hard to avoid. And we talk about Rebecca's Quaker faith and the role she sees that playing in her attempts to see the best in others and reduce us-versus-them anger. A little more about Rebecca, she's a Quaker minister, a hospice chaplain, a certified celebrant, and a certified psychedelic-assisted therapist. Her website is at fullcircleceremony.com. She's also a wife and the mother of two sons. One caveat about this talk, which I wanted to include for Caroline residents who might be listening and who might have strong opinions on this matter. In this talk, both Rebecca and I criticize the degree of anger and animosity that people have brought to this debate, but that isn't a criticism of people's stances on the issues. I actually think it's easy to understand the various points of view people have in this divide. It's easy to understand why people might want their town to retain its small town nature and charm, and it's easy to see why people might object to new laws that they see as overly restrictive and harmful in various ways. This is just to say I hope it's obvious that neither I nor Rebecca are criticizing any specific stances on this issue. Just a heads up before we start, this podcast has some ads. If you want to subscribe and get an ad-free version of this podcast and get a few other features like collaborating on upcoming episodes, getting a free copy of my depolarization book, and more, you can learn more about that by going to behavior-podcast.com. Aside from any benefits, you'll be supporting me in making this podcast better and in promoting it. So if you've thought my work on this podcast has been interesting or important, and you've enjoyed all the free content I've put out, maybe you consider signing up. Okay, here's the talk with Rebecca Schillenbeck. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. 
So maybe we could start with what led you to write your letter to the editor, because clearly you're, you were frustrated with the, the animosity in town. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the things that come to mind that were most bothering you about the, the debate in town. Sure. Well, I guess to get there, maybe I can just give you a little background first. Sure. Would that be okay? Oh yeah. So in my understanding, the fault lines and the like the divergent perspectives that would kind of crystallize and harden into conflicting perspectives have simmered in the town of Caroline for a really long time. But the catalyst for the current zoning conflict in the town happened in the summer of 2020. That was the decision by a local landowner who grows hay to sell or lease, I'm not sure which, a parcel of his land to the Dollar General Corporation. It was like in July of 2020, people learned that the Dollar General was going to build a store in Caroline and, and then sort of immediately following that, there were opposing camps. There were people... Mm super opposed to it and people super for it. And in the genesis of that conflict, I think were the seeds for the current zoning conflict. Hmm. But of course they had already existed and had germinated in previous incarnations of previous conflicts in the town. But that was really what started this. So you had, you know, you had people arguing that if one cares about low income or low age people, low or working class people, one would have to be for the Dollar General because it'd be a local source for affordable goods and foods. Mm-hmm. And, and, and frequently that argument would be accompanied by accusations of elitism if one was opposed to the Dollar General. And those elitists would be like diagnosed as lazy, overeducated <laughs> Mm-hmm. Cornell professors who never did a day's real work in their lives, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and who just wanted to look out over their country estate mm-hmm. without the distasteful Dollar General marring it. And so there was the framing in that Dollar General conflict, the conflict around class, around education, around the value of different kinds of work around urban and rural tensions, around cultural signifiers of class belonging, like shopping at the Dollar General or not shopping at the Dollar General, landowners or those who own land, those who didn't, and all of that framing transferred over to the zoning fight. Mm-hmm. And that Dollar General is there? Is that is that correct? It's not there. No. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably getting into the weeds a little bit to... To talk about how all that went down, but um, there was a a moratorium put in place, and and you know that that sort of further entrenched a divide. And then while that moratorium was put in place, moratorium on development, there was a um, the town board formed a land use and economic development task force. I think was the formal long name of it which I actually volunteered to be on. <laughs> mm. um, 
not that I was a particularly robust or knowledgeable member of it, but I did attend meetings. <laughs> um, out of that task force came the recommendation for zoning. As somebody who um, is trying to learn about this, not knowing too much about it, it, it struck me as, I mean, there's so many ways to parse the uh, the arguments, it seems like, because you could, you know, there, there, there's also people who would make arguments for the zoning that say it's helping the, mm-hmm. you know, lower income people, like, for example, keeping the dollar general out. I've seen arguments saying that that's, you know, that that's actually keeping the corporations out and such is, right. is actually helping the poorer people. And so you can, you can parse these arguments in different yeah, ways, totally. but, but I guess I'm curious, do you see it, the debate aligning around the stereotypical conservative versus liberal divides, or is it, do you feel like it's a lot more complex than that? Well, I, I think that that template has been placed upon the conflict, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. people are, people are applying the template yeah, to it when they yeah, see fit. Yeah. So um, those categories were sort of established with the dollar general conflict. And then, so now those categories just kind of migrated over to the zoning conflict. But, you know, there's definitely people, there are nuances and there are people capable of having nuanced positions. Um, So it doesn't always in every individual or household break down along those lines. But it's the prevailing um, template, I would say. And, and and to make sure I'm getting it right, the, the prevailing template is like the conservative kind of pro-freedom stance is on the anti-zoning mm-hmm. law. But then is, am I getting that right? Yeah. Again, not always. But, right, right. The, but the, but um, it's common. Co- there's common, a common framing yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say so. But then there's also an element of people who are anti-zoning saying that anti-zoning is discriminating against poor people, which is kind of a more liberal framing. So it's mm-hmm, been hard yeah. for me to parse like how the, uh, how the two sides break down, but I get that it's, it's nuanced, but uh, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And actually just within the last maybe two weeks, maybe even less, a new sign has, has cropped up at the corner of 79 and a, Brookdendale Road that says, I think it says zoning is class warfare, mm. like that. Hmm. Isn't it? I mean, isn't it true too that in some other places, anti-zoning perspectives are much more like a a pretty uh, left idea because there's ideas that zoning can be discriminatory and and mm-hmm. uh, you know right. can be for, for, for class class warfare on the other side <laughs> yeah exactly i guess that's what i'm getting at is trying to good trend for corporations that. right so it's mm-hmm. like i don't know correct me if i'm or, or or you can tell me what you feel but it seems like a lot of times we're dealing with these emotions coming first and then we're we're getting triggered with these emotions and then we're looking yeah. for these things that mm-hmm. line up with the divides that we already know you know it's right yes yeah, and that's what I was trying to say with the Dollar General. Like, sort of the the conflict presented itself, and like the the sorting mm-hmm. categories categorizations of people in those opposing camps 
the sorting happened and then the zoning was, you know, that was overlaid on the zoning conflict. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. but I would say that, okay. So like, I think that the, just speaking of emotions. So one of the things I think that emotions, that all of the emotions that we can talk about them, what they are, anger, fear, I think grief, they're, they're all in there. But one of the things that happens when we're sort of all in these opposing camps and getting triggered in our emotions and then just emoting <laughs> at each other mm-hmm. um, is that there's these sort of real unresolved questions, deep questions, and or maybe even unasked questions that don't get addressed. And those are like questions of community values, community decision-making, who gets to be in on community decision-making, whose values get to be the ones that inform the decision-making, mm-hmm. sort of questions about power, how much power should corporations have versus municipalities? How much power should individuals have or collections of individuals? You know, what kind of development is beneficial? Who decides what's beneficial? And even like deeper than that, what's an economy for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what purpose does an economy serve? What purpose does a community serve? What's a community for? You know, well, that's what uh, it, it feels like with some of so much of this, the polarization and us versus them anger. It's like when you start examining any system, there's so many things, so many faults you can find with any system. It's almost like yeah. our e- emotions and our anger start leading us to like questioning everything about the right. system, you know, from whatever direction it's like every, every system is imperfect and kind of ar- a lot of things are just so arbitrary. And so yeah. you start looking around and being like, why is it this way and not this way? Why, right. why do I not get involved in this? What, you know, right. Right. And it just makes us agitated, mm-hmm. you know, in general. And we look for, outlets for our or or factors or, or reasons for our agitation and and what to do about it it's just kind of a general maddening of everything yeah and there's not really space for asking those or answering those deep questions that you know like the examples that i just gave like what mm-hmm. oh, how like how, how would you change a system like how would you change it? Like if we asked a question really deeply what's our economy for and it like showed us answers that like contradict what our current economy is for (laughs) how do you change it what do you what do you do especially when some of the um systemic things like that you were talking about the arbitrary things were arbitrary like i don't know 100 years ago 200 (laughs) years ago you know yeah it's like a slow moving ship you know you can't just like you know you can't just change it overnight it's the way it is for better for worse for a Mm -hmm. while anyway Unless everyone gets together and votes on it or something, yeah. And even that's not a perfect way of, especially with our polarization the way it is, like, you know, if 51% of people vote for something Mm. and the 49% don't, you have 49% of people really unhappy, you know? Mm -hmm. That's not a recipe for, like, Mm -hmm. a happy community. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, and then they, and then they might feel compelled to look for reasons why it wasn't a genuine reflection of the mm-hmm. community for various mm-hmm. reasons. So, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about what led you to write your letter to the editor. What, uh, what were you seeing in terms of yeah. the emotion and the, the unreasonable emotion in the, in the community? Yeah. Yeah. So all of that background is just to say that 
dissatisfaction with the way that we've been having this conflict. This conflict is what prompted me to write my letter to the editor in December, last December, December of 2022. I guess, I guess for me, one of my points of faith as a Quaker is that the means that we use will determine the ends that we reach. And that includes how we handle conflict. It's my, it's a, I guess, a point of my faith that it's the, at least theoretically possible. I believe that it's at least theoretically possible to have a conflict that doesn't guarantee perpetual warfare, <laughs> mm-hmm. continued conflict in perpetuity. It is my faith that it is possible to have fruitful conflict, that we can view conflict as an opportunity to ask some of those questions, you know, to um, deal with deeper issues of meaning and purpose and, mm-hmm. and to address some of these orphaned emotions that we get triggered by and lead us to just be like shouting at each other triggered. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I guess as a, as a point of faith in the possibility of fruitful conflict, I wanted to write a letter that um, I, I just wanted to um, interject something else into the narrative. Mm-hmm. When it comes to some of the most warlike, unreasonably divided language that you've seen, what what comes to mind for examples of that? Yeah, well, I, I started that letter with the, you know, the big one was like the big giant sign that went up whenever that was, maybe the beginning of 2021. And it says, there's a war. It's a declaration of war. There's a war in the valley. Time to pick a side. Mm. And the valley being Caroline Valley. And the... I think all, all of the, almost all of the signs, many of the signs from the folks who are opposed to zoning, you know, they're just, they're these, they're declarative statements. I mean, it's hard to put nuance on a sign. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> but, um, but. Need a bigger sign. Right. Yeah. But yeah, but you just drive by. It's so much easier to say things like, Oh, like there was one at the bottom of our road that was like, zoning is for people who don't love thy neighbor. <laughs> uh, yeah, I drove I drove through Carolina. I'm trying to remember some of the ones I saw. I should have written them down. But yeah, it was some, I saw some pretty extreme Zoning ones. equals control. <laughs> zoning kills dreams. That's what they want. Yeah, zoning kills dreams. That was the one I remembered, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's real sense of, that's, that's the person who's, wrote that has a real sense of threat right like there's mm-hmm. well i can imagine you know it, i can i can understand the perspective that they they are used to not having rules and then mm-hmm. having rules can feel like right. a threat because it is a mm-hmm. restriction of right whatever sort yeah right 100 percent ideal of freedom as opposed to like having to negotiate your freedom with other needs is there are there examples of um more like language on the other side, or am I sensing correctly that it's you know it's mainly the the anti zoning people who feel like they're the underdog, so maybe that's part of why they yeah are using such strong language or something yeah, I think they feel under threat i think i think i I think that if I'm trying to put myself in their shoes that they anti zoning people feel like war has been declared on them, actually mm-hmm. war has been brought to them um, mm. in fact, I remember at 
one of the town board listening sessions, somebody compared the town board to Russia and the anti-zoning people of Caroline to Ukraine. Mm. So going back to the war, the war language again. Yeah. Yeah. And a sense that a righteous sense that injustice is being perpetrated on them. Right. They're being, they're being invaded by the the zoning Mm -hmm. rules, right. That their community is under attack. Do you think uh, if this had been, say we went back 10 years ago when we were, you know, significantly less polarized as a country, do you feel like the Caroline uh, zoning debate would be more calm? Do you feel like the us versus them national political polarization has impacted how this played out? Well, I do think it has impacted it, but honestly, I don't think it would have been much differently, different even 10 years ago. Mm, it was okay. about 10 years ago, maybe more than that. It was right around 2005, I think, that um, a, a noise ordinance was proposed for the town of Caroline. And some of the same rhetoric was used, some of the same strategies of, of narrative control were used. Mm. And it was the sort of same folks who were opposed to the noise ordinance who came out against it and felt that they were being invaded by people, by transplants from Ithaca who were trying to make this the suburbs. Um, Mm. And then on the heels of that, there was a big fight sort of on the other, from the other side and maybe that's what really entrenched the differences. I don't know. But the the next fight after the, the noise ordinance didn't pass, by mm. the way. <laughs> um, and then there was a big fight about fracking. Oh, right. Yeah. And um, having a fracking ban adopted in the town of Caroline. It turned out that that was banned on the state level. Mm. Um, so that was great. <laughs> but um, then that, that was sort of like flipped the anti-energy, right? Like it was sort of more from the quote left or the, you know, the people on the quote left of more liberal were opposed to fracking. I don't know. I've, I've been really noticing how being opposed to something brings a certain energy that is really catalyzing and really fuels, fuels a fight and brings people to your cause in a way that being for something, it seems like harder Mm -hmm. here locally anyway. I mean, I don't think that's like universally the case, but, but there, there is something about that oppositional energy that's super energizing. Right. I think it's, would you say, I mean, in my opinion, it, it seems related to the, you know, if you can paint your group or if you, if you either believe your group, is the underdog fighting some, you know, something that's almost certainly going to happen kind of thing or is already happening, Mm -hmm. then you can really gain energy because you get the underdog energy where you feel like you're fighting some, some big monolithic, you know, empire power or something. Yeah. 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 Anger is really, it's a fuel. It can be used Mm -hmm. as a fuel. Anger and fear also, fear can also be really mobilizing fear of what will happen if you don't stand against this monstrous injustice, whatever mm-hmm. it is. A small note here. I think the underdog factor is an underexamined factor in our national us versus them divides, especially in the Republican side 
angry rhetoric. Progressive views are dominant in American cultural institutions and entertainment and academia and news, while conservative views and conservatives are often mocked and viewed through extremely pessimistic lenses in those institutions. For one examination of this, I'd recommend Erica Edelson's book, Beyond Contempt, where she catalogs the ways that mainstream liberal-leaning people and shows and news outlets routinely insult conservatives, often in pretty vicious and demeaning ways. And she examines how that might be contributing to our divides. I think this underdog factor can help explain some conservatives believing aggressive, belligerent behavior and rhetoric, like that of Trump and other Republican leaders, is morally justified. There's a belief that they're fighting against a powerful system and powerful forces that have no respect for them. And seeing things that way can make it seem justified to take more belligerent, aggressive approaches. Just as any group that perceives itself as the aggrieved and threatened underdog can justify such behavior. Just as some liberal side activists can have similar feelings of being the underdog on various issues and can feel justified using more aggressive rhetoric and strategies. This is not to say that such aggressive and angry behaviors are justified, but just to try to understand these things better. And I just wanted to mention that as I think it's an underexamined point and an important one. We'll go forward a bit to where we're talking about how we talk to others when we disagree. Well, I think that that gets back to your point of which I agree with, which is the meta level of how you have the the conversations is much more important than the actual issues because how you have the conversations can actually make the debate devolve and make people more extreme in their positions and just hurts everyone basically as opposed yeah. to you know taking it from the stance of like the the fundamental democracy stance of you know we're we're going to have disagreements and it's understandable that people think different things and but we have to take the stance yeah. that uh you know and we're going to lose some of our things that we care mm-hmm. about you know occasionally that's the nature of democracy too we're going to lose fights and just taking that that meta stance of you know the the way you right. have the debate is right is the most important thing right but but there's I, I i do feel like there's something dangerous that's happening both locally and nationally it's like the I'm just thinking this out loud now, trying to formulate this <laughs> out loud, so it might be clunky, mm-hmm. but it's like the, the, it's like the conflict and the, the template of conflict that we were talking about in the beginning. It's like that has taken on its own meta life somehow. So like, cause you see people try to help us get out of this, place that we're stuck in and and like the rigid binary dualistic us against them thing Mm -hmm. it's like for a sizable number of people the fight is the thing like the fight is the conversation Mm -hmm. do do you know what i mean am i saying anything that makes sense there (laughs) yeah i think so it's like the you know sort of like the way that the national polarization has become, it's become more accepted to um, speak in very aggressive ways and this kind of thing. It's like, you know, as, as people get more polarized, the, the, the acceptable levels of uh, how you speak to people changes and that it impacts everything, I think is, is, is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. And it's also, it's like, we've gotten in ourselves in a pretty terrible positive feedback loop where the, the more we do that, the more we do that. And it's becoming harder and harder to to stop it and step outside of it. So everything now, like, right, like everything is a culture war issue. 
stoves mm-hmm. are a culture mm-hmm. war, what you, what you like, wear, what you drive, when <laughs> everything, right. there's nothing that's not what you watch, <laughs> what entertains you. I, I, I just reading this paper about the oil spill nature of polarization. And, you know, we tend to think of it as like this debate over, um, ideological debate of like this issue versus this issue issue. But, uh, this, uh, researcher Della Posta, I think his name is, he described it as more of a oil spill, you know, that this anger that we have kind of impacts mm. it, everything. And there's mm-hmm. these pockets of, and it helps explain kind of the arbitrary nature of some of the divides, you know, in like regions where it's mm-hmm. like, you might have one political group on one side of something here, but a, they'd be on the other mm-hmm. side of something elsewhere. It's just because these, uh, we're kind of swimming in this us versus them energy. So it affects mm-hmm. all these things we look around and, and see, we, we filter it through these yeah. us versus them framings and, and are more easily angered and such, and more easily looking for offense. And you know, yeah. so it just in, in, impacts, infects uh, a, a lot of interactions. Yeah. The oil, the oil spill, that's a good metaphor. Yeah. I like that one. There's also something like, I don't know, some metaphor around habit or even like mm. addiction. I don't know. I think we get hooked on the like. Um, the rage. Yeah. Or just yeah, like righteous, the, righteous feeling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It feels good. Yeah. I think that's the, yeah, it's kind of like the, the doom scrolling of, you know, social media that people mm-hmm. engage in where it's like just feeling righteous and offended can be energizing, you know, and, mm-hmm. and even addictive. Mm-hmm. And Yeah. With or without social media. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about your Quaker beliefs. Were you born into a Quaker family? Did you convert? Maybe you could talk about how you, how those beliefs formed. Sure. I was not born into a Quaker family. I was born into a very Roman Catholic family in Auburn, New York, about an uh, hour from here. And I guess my journey to Quakerism is a very long and windy one, <laughs> but um, I eventually made my way to a Quaker meeting that's about halfway between here and my hometown on um, Cuba Lake near, near uh, like halfway up Cuba Lake. That community, there have been Quakers there since the late 1700s, since like 1788. There's one remaining Quaker meeting there, Poplar Ridge monthly meeting, my spiritual home for sure. I've been attending there for a pretty long time now, 15 years now-ish. I made it there in my like early 30s. And I guess if I had to um, distill an essential, what it means to me to be Quaker, I believe that there is that of God in everyone. There's a famous quotation from our founder, George Fox. (laughs) He said in, I don't know, like maybe 1650 or something like that. He said, um, walk cheerfully over the world, answering that of God and everyone. And what that means to me is that there is a sacred something, like a irreducible (laughs) somebody-ness, to use the um, word that Martin Luther King Jr., used a somebodyness, a, a beingness of great value in everyone. And I would expand George Fox's original statement to, to, to also say everything. Hmm. There's, there's something of the sacred here in all of us and in all of life. 
and in the whole of the manifest world, there's that of God. And that's the essential truth and, and that everyone and everything has intrinsic worth beyond how humans could assess or determine that worth beyond buying or selling. And uh, so we should treat everyone and everything accordingly. So something I've been curious about when it comes to Quakerism, how far does the pacifism extend? And I know that probably varies from person to person or, or maybe church to church and such, but is it is really the case that Quakers would literally not defend themselves and be entirely turn the other cheek in the in the face of uh, aggression? Are there certain situations that you know are acknowledged by the church that we need to be a little bit aggressive in this situation, or, or how does that break down from your perspective? There's a lot in there. That is a <laughs> massive question. Yeah. Um, Sorry about that one. No, it's a great question. It's, <laughs> Let's see if I can do it justice. Um, okay, yes. So first I would say, as, as you already alluded to, that I, I, I don't think that all Quakers would say one thing, would answer the, this very big question in, in any one way. <laughs> because first of all, Quakers are notoriously difficult to corral into agreement <laughs> or into a position statement. <laughs> Um, anything that might come across as a creed or a stated orthodoxy is anathema to Quakers. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing. But then I would also say that um, I don't hear Quakers using the word pacifism, actually. I think that's more of a label applied f- like from the outside to a perceived ideology. And so... I, oh, I I hear Quakers saying peace testimony. Quakers have a, I think it's six, six um, sort of traditional testimonies, simplicity, peace, integrity, community, equality, stewardship, spices <laughs> is the thing. What is that called when the words, the, the uh, letters make a word? Spices, oh, whatever um, that is. Like a- acron- uh, acronym. Acronym. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. So peace, the peace testimony is one of our traditional witnesses or testimonies. And so it's not, as I understand it, an orthodoxy, like an imposed creed. It's, there's not like a list of things you can do and a list of things you can't do to be on the right side of the orthodoxy of the peace testimony. It's more an understanding that our faith in that of God and everyone and everything and our answering our practice of trying to answer that of God and everyone and everything would result in this testimony of peacemaking. Does that make sense? The Mm -hmm. distinction there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So as I understand it, as I try to practice peacemaking and testifying to my practice of answering that of God and everyone with a lot of backsliding and mistakes and varying degrees of faithfulness and fatigue and imperfection. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that it's not whether you're angry. It's not whether you're disagreeing with someone. It's not whether you have a conflict, but it's whether you are being angry, disagreeing and in conflict while maintaining contact with and faith in that of God in yourself and in the other people and beings that you're with. 
what's like uh, Quakers or or natural uh, conflict resolution experts and and depolarizers? Would would you say that's? I mean, it, it would come more naturally to them than most other religion people. Would you agree? Well, I think we try anyway. Yes, that's the the driving underlying force or, or, or philosophy is seeing others as yeah, you know, as fundamentally uh, important and such. Right, respecting the like selfhood and personhood and and fundamental radical equality of everyone that you're disagreeing with or in, in conflict with. Do you know that uh, that quote uh, there before the grace of God go I the John Bradford quote, is that often something that do, do, do Quakers like that sentiment? Oh, it's so funny that you said that because I, I just remembered a, a, ser, a message sermon message is Quaker speak for sermon mm-hmm. that someone brought, I don't know, probably 10, 12 years ago to Poplar Ridge. And he ended with like, I was just thinking about that just this morning. He ended with there, but for the grace of God, go I. And yeah, I think you're, I think that's right on. That's a right on insight. Like it's really important not to think that we're better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Well, I was using that as yeah, in, in my depolarization book I'm working on. That was one of the things I started with because I think it, I think whether you're religious or atheistic, atheistic, secular, it's, it's just kind of a logical thing to look around and, and recognize that, you know, see that there's so many factors at work, whether it's, purely physical factors or, you know, uh, if you're, if you're spiritual, you know, spiritual factors that, that make us who we are and that make people what they are. And there's this arrogance involved Mm -hmm. in like even judging other people, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. to judge someone else, you have to assume that totally they know the things you do. And how would you ever assume that about other people? Clearly they have many other factors that made them who they were and you could just as easily be them in different circumstances. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you de- you're definitely right that you don't have to use religious language or have a religious or spiritual framework to res- to respect that if you had the same circumstances as some this other person in front of you, you might be drawing the exact same conclusions that they're drawing. You might be having the exact same hardships. It's just compassion. Right. It's uh yeah, I think the thing that gets me about the the anger part of it. It's it's not that I'm immune to anger, but it's just the philosophy that there's nothing really to be gained from anger, I think is an important, you know, philosophical concept because it's like, yeah, what, let alone all the compassion and recognizing that somebody else could, you know, I could just as easily be them in different circumstances. It's also like my anger is part of the equation and in, in helping produce the things that I don't like, you know, or, or often is. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it it's interesting that you should say that because I oh, I've been I've been really working with anger lately. One of the things I I do, I'm a hospice chaplain and I'm I'm in um clinical pastoral education for continuing education for chaplains and and we were just talking yesterday about anger and about how often anger arises for me in in the work of being with people at the end of their lives. And it's often anger at the system, anger at injustice, anger at what people 
have to deal with that they wouldn't have to deal with if we had a different system. Um, Mm -hmm. um, But it's all, it can also be anger at like ignorance that I observe in people. And yeah. What's like, yeah, my, my thing of working on depolarization, I'm prone to getting angry about people not recognizing the importance of the depolarization work. And then so I'm, I'm sort of at this meta level often where I'm like, you know, got my own, different anger issues where I'm like, well, wait, everybody, they have their reasons for what they're doing. You know, like everyone, everyone's got their, their reasons for what they're doing, they're doing and, and the reasons for why they formed their angry beliefs, uh, like too angry in, in many cases, in my opinion. But, um, you know, it's kind of like, we've all, it's the, we it's all the struggle. have our anger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the that's the other weakness. piece, right? Right. That's the other piece is that some of there are things are universal and the human condition and, and sort of recognizing that universality of like, Oh, he's struggling, he's struggling with anger right now. I've, I've also felt anger, you know, <laughs> um, like that kind of universality of the human condition is, you know, that could be a atheist stand in for mm-hmm. what, I, you know, the word I use is God. Yeah. It's like recognizing that we're surrounded by angry narratives and like, therefore people will be getting angry. You know, it's kind of like we can cut them as much as we're able to, we can cut people some slack for even, you know, for getting angry in the, in the first place. It's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can believe that they shouldn't be as angry as they are, but it's also like, yeah, there's reasons for why they're angry because we're surrounded by reasons to get angry. And it's not surprising that we're, people are getting mm-hmm. angry about various things. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing about anger that I feel like I've, has really just seemed true to me as, as a chaplain is that anger can be a protective emotion. It's like underneath the anger, there's usually fear or sadness mm-hmm. and anger is easier to feel than fear or sadness. It's much more empowering, mm. it's much less disempowering than either of those. That's a good point. Do you want to uh, add anything else that you would like to add here, whether about the topics we've covered or, or, um, anything you're working on, anything at all? Well, I guess just to that final point that I just made, I would just like circle back and say that I think in Caroline, that dynamic is at play where anger is being expressed. There is some underlying fear and sadness. And, you know, I wonder again about a, a opening or a possible way of, I don't know, depolarizing is the word you've been using, but like Mm de-escalating might exist by just um, acknowledging that people are feeling sadness and, and fear when they, when they look at the future. And that's true here in Caroline. And that's, that's true all over our country. And like, it's one place where like it's ironically a place where all of the like binaries and dualisms break down. Like on the left people fear, feel fear and sadness and on the right people feel fear and sadness. So it's like weird that that might be a place that we could come together. <laughs> well, it's, I'm so glad you got back to that. Cause actually I meant to touch on this because in my depolarization book I'm working on, I actually lead with, you know, when I talk about the issues, I actually lead with the money related fears that people Mm -hmm. have, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and and, and there can be ways that people on the left and the right 
mock the other side for those fears, right? So uh, right. give an example that conservatives can say things like, hey, we've got more appliances and, you know, nice things than we've ever had before. But, you know, clearly like that doesn't, that doesn't really help people if you're afraid, like you're not going to have money in a few months, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, if you, one bad accident right. is, is going to be enough to make you be broke or, or homeless. It's like right. the appliances don't really matter. And similarly on the left, the left can, you know, there's often this mocking that, that uh, financial anxiety played a role in Trump support, but there's plenty of evidence that there was a lot of, you know, anti-establishment feelings that were mm-hmm. resulting from economic anxiety. There's, there's plenty of surveys that, that show that that was a, a big factor. So I think beginning back to your point, it's, it's like a lot of these fears that we have, like fears about the future and how we're going to be in the future are channeled into these us versus them right. feelings. And they have this root cause of just existential dread about like what the future holds and right. what, how everything's really going to work out, you know? Right. Right. And like, I wonder what would happen if we afforded each other more compassion for that fear mm-hmm. and that, that sadness. And also if we were able to ask, well, who's benefiting from channeling this into an us against them thing so that we're, we're just squabbling with each other. Who's benefiting from that being the default setting for everything. <laughs> Someone doesn't want us to get in touch with our fear and our sadness. Who is it? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, I hear that a good amount too. You know, the, the uh, feeling that, you know, it's good to have people distracted, but I, I also just feel like we're just naturally prone to squabbling about things that don't actually matter, you know? Uh, yeah. Could we be. just, we just look for the thing that's next to us and squabble over it. Right? <laughs> Could be. That certainly <laughs> seems true with my sons. I will give you that. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, sometimes it's, yeah, we just, we just, we just like to express our anger nearby. <laughs> or something or, or at things that are most obvious to us instead of the things that are like harder to, right. To calculate. Right. 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 Yeah. Yep. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been, this has been great. And, um, thanks for writing that great letter to the editor and, um, yeah, thanks for your, for, for your work and for, for coming on. Um, thank you for yours. This has been a lot of fun. That was a talk with Rebecca Schillenbach about the divide over a zoning law proposal in the town of Caroline, New York. Rebecca is a Quaker minister, a hospice chaplain, a certified celebrant, and a certified psychedelic-assisted therapist. Her website is at fullcircleceremony.com. This has been the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. You can learn more about this podcast and past episodes at behavior-podcast.com. If you like this podcast and want to show your support, you can subscribe to it at behavior-podcast.com premium. Your support will encourage me to work on this podcast more and help me promote it to other people. Also, leaving a review for it on Apple Podcasts or another podcast platform is hugely appreciated, as is sharing episodes with your family and friends. Thanks for listening. Music by Small Skies. Small Skies.